Welcome to the Observer Effect, a podcast of travel stories. Each week, we hope to bring you a conversation with someone we meet overseas. And at least one good story. Episode 118, The Last Grain of Rice, Mosul, where Mikey saw a face. Your thought kindled a fire beside you that showed a path. Abu al-Allah al-Mahdi. There you go. Look at that. It's almost like it was designed. <laughs> studio. The monks designed it as a studio as well. Okay, so we'll start over from the beginning. Mm. So the first question, can you describe what you look like? Give people a picture of who they're listening to. Uh, I'm a six foot five to six foot six, 230 pound Welsh Sasquatch or Yeti. (laughs) And even if I shave my beard, I'm still really hairy. (laughs) That's basically it. You You can't walk into any room quietly or unnoticed. Uh, I'm realizing that must make your work hard in the context of what you said before. If you're trying to, um, if you're trying to be uh, kind of sneaking somewhere under the radar, uh, it, it doesn't happen. But when it comes to now filmmaking, it's got its, it's, got its real positives because uh, when you're holding a camera, I hold the camera at my chest level, which is most people's eye level, so it's actually... It's actually really, it, it's really convenient. Uh, it's convenient because, you know, you can command attention when you need attention. Um, and it's also a talking factor, you know. When you, when you interview someone for the first time, the first thing they usually do is, is they comment on your size. And it's a real icebreaker in terms of, in terms of they never feel, the, the, the funny thing is that they never feel intimidated. They always feel sort of, I don't know, more protected, more close, more safe with you. Mm. And I think that really brings out a certain dynamic in the interview. Um, It's almost like the big friendly giant effect. Yeah. Which I've noticed, and it's something I'd never had expected, actually. So, can you describe what you're leaning against right now? Yeah, this is a... This is a piece of infrastructure that's a a real force of nature. I did a show last year... um, for the History Channel, I hosted a show called Buried, Knights Templar and the Holy Grail. And we started off in Jerusalem in the old city and we went up to the Temple Mount or Haram al-Sharif, uh, as it's known in the Islamic community. Uh, we started off there, went out to Accra, and we basically just investigated the retreat of the Templar Knights from the Holy Land all the way back into Paris and Europe and their transformation into the Order of Christ in Portugal. And it involved going around these epic castles, underground cavities, tunnels uh, and investigating the infrastructure that the, that the Templars made. They became effectively um, pioneers and masters in architecture when it came to subterranean type type um, type infrastructure. And, and this Mont Saint-Michel, this beautiful structure that we're leaning up against right here, which was uh, consummated in the 8th century, it's just another. It's just another one of these wanderer sort of buildings that. The first thing my logical brain goes to is how the hell did they build this? You know, we've just we we've just been up to the very top up by the spire, 
and you look down and you just think, how is this even possible? It's 60 years in its making, which again is you know incredible, over half a century to actually build. But when you look at some of the stone, some of the size of the stone, and you, and you you figure out, try to figure out back then how they actually got one brick on top of the other, where the actual source of the granite came from, because most of it's granite, which is an island about 35 kilometers away. It's one hell of a production. Yeah. Um, and then you, I sort of always turn to well, you know. What does it look like from an aggressor's point of view? Yeah. You know, being in the military, I always try and red team it and think, well, you know, how good a structure is this in terms of what it was probably designed to do, which was prevent invaders from coming in. And by all accounts, it was it was never occupied. It was never invaded successfully. Years it was yeah, it yeah. wasn't beaten by the So British. so it clearly it clearly has been built effectively and, and, and has served its purpose. Well, can you explain the other effect that really helps it be impregnable? For the people listening who may not know what Mont Saint Michel is, I mean we're on we're on the west coast of France and we've got this. I mean it's it, it's been built here because it's got its own natural moat. So I'd say pretty much for 270 degrees around this island, you've got sea or you've got marsh, and then for the other for the other 90 degrees, you've kind of got the access to the mainland, which has its own sort of river slash estuary running along it. So it really does embrace all of the natural environment to form that protective sphere around it, force protection, we used to call it in the military. And that's what they've done is they've, they've, they've used all of the natural environment as possible in order to create this, this element of defense. And it's, um, it's pretty genius, to be honest. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's 500 feet from sea level up to the spire. Most of the town existed about 350 feet. So in terms of vertical extent, it's pretty much got everything. So obviously travel has played a big role in your life. Can you give a quick rundown of uh, <laughs> everything you do and have done? <laughs> I've, been very, um, I've, been pri- I've been very privileged in, in the career that I've managed to lead. I'd spent 20 years in the British military. Um, I did did over 10 tours of duty, started off in Northern Ireland during the Troubles, uh, ended up in Kosovo for a couple of tours. Uh, I was in Italy supporting the Bosnia campaign before that. And then things got serious in, in Iraq and was one of the first to cross the border from Ali al-Salem in Kuwait up to Basra in 2003. Uh, the al Four Peninsula insert, then went back to, then went to Afghanistan as a as a military advisor to the U.S. commanding general for a study on the Afghan National Army. Uh, then went into Helmand province to work on the campaign warfighting plan for the inload of, of Brits into Helmand, which was effectively the the centerpiece of, of Taliban control because that's where the, the Helmand River ran up and that's where the predominancy of, of opium growth was, which funded the Taliban. Then went back into Baghdad to support uh, SF operations on uh, high-value Al-Qaeda targets, did two tours there. Uh, then ended up on the shores of Sumatra 36 hours after the tsunami hit, doing disaster relief and humanitarian assistance uh, in the absence of UN's OCHA, which is the Office for Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs. They're effectively the people that run all of the crisis response. So it was a very privileged military career, and you really do see society at its, at its, uh, at its lowest, you know usually in conflict or disaster zones. Um, And the thing that really jumped out for me was, in all of that travel, people being at the lowest of the low, they'd still look to give you their last grain of rice, 
they'd still have a smile on their face and they'd still be welcoming, generally. I'm not saying all the time, but generally. And it was a wonderful way to learn about society and, and humanity and, and, and the, uh, the essence of effectively what people who don't have a lot um, can give you. Um, and, it, and, it, and it usually doesn't involve anything to do with money. It's all about a smile or a welcome or a greeting or their time or telling, telling, you, telling, telling, um, telling you their stories. And, and, you know, when I left the military six years ago, those stories I'd always wanted to try and capture in some way. And so uh, I just taught myself filmmaking right from, the, right from the very beginning. Left the military, didn't know how to turn a camera on, bought 20 grand's worth of equipment, uh, an EOS 1D Mark IV Canon, uh, 7200 millimeter IS Mark II telephoto lens, 50 mil prime 1.2, and a 1635 millimeter wide, and and I just started off on the streets of New York at Fashion Week, street style photography, trial and error, online tutorials, and then I met a wonderful lady who was a fashion director for Vogue who asked. Basically, I took a photograph of her. It was a really cool photograph. I tweeted it at her. She. Um, <laughs> She responded and said, I wish this guy could follow me around all fashion week. So I tweeted back with my 200 followers at the time and said, be careful what you wish for. She said, let's meet for a coffee. She said, I love your photography, but do you do video? I said, yeah, no problem. Brilliant video. No idea. She said, can you come and film this weekend? Said, yeah, no problem. So I got back to my apartment. I was like, shit. Shit. Online tutorials, video, video, Google video, Canon. <laughs> And then I'm like, shit, I'm going to have to edit this as well. Like video, edit, you know. And eventually, I, I think I shot like nine hours of footage for a two-minute video. Just, just absolutely petrified that I hadn't pressed the record button. And then like, was it going to be in focus? Was it going to be overexposed? And I spent like three weeks editing this thing for two minutes. And thankfully, she was like, yeah, this is all right. Come back and do another. So I got an opportunity to get better at what I did. And just to put it in perspective now, you know, I turn up, I mean, I've, I've, I've advanced much more than that. Occasionally, Sarah calls me up and she says, look, can you do a video? I'm like, yeah, no worries. So I'll turn up for half an hour, shoot some stuff, edit it in an hour, and then it's out the door. So that's just sort of, so that was kind of that evolution. And then, you know, started appearing on CNN and Fox and places like that because of my foreign policy experience. And then married the two together and, and decided I was going to make films, but in conflict zones. And do it as a single man unit. So I literally just came back from Kenya filming in Kakuma refugee camp with a wonderful lady called Halima Adan, who's a US Somali refugee. Um, she was born in Kakuma. She's now a supermodel. And I got to tell her what story. A beautiful story, too. I watched a little yeah. video. Yeah. yeah. Sorry, you're not getting much word, not many words in here, but... No, 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 no. That's, that's the goal. Yeah, she, um, you know, she was a wonderful subject to follow, and I literally, from start to finish, traveled out with her, filmed her, produced it, audio mixed it, got back, media managed it all, wrote it all, and then edited the 15-minute documentary. And I think over the last six years, that's what it's all been about, is building up that skill set to be able to competently go in with a very, very low footprint to get that to get that, that natural, credible, beautiful footage that big productions, doesn't matter how hard they try, just can't get because it's quite overwhelming. And that, for me now, is kind of like my... I hope to work with UNICEF in the future, I hope to work with Condé Nast in the future, to be able to go and tell those stories um, in an authentic and, and, you know, natural way. What do you read to, to learn these kinds of things, or what, what filmmakers do you look to? 
How, how do you educate yourself on that kind of thing? Yeah, Is a, it a Google search? It's a, <laughs> you know, it's, 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 a really, it's really interesting. I, I, I watch films now in a very different way. Um, I met a guy called Pete Burke, who's um, a director. He directed The Kingdom, Friday Night Lights, uh, Lone Survivor. Big military guy, lovely bloke. Met him in Soho House in New York. And, um, you know, I look at people like him, and every time I watch a film now, it's not so much enjoying the... It is enjoying the film, but it's also... How is a certain, you know, looking at a certain shot? How, you know, what was the setup for that? What was the light? Always looking at the light, use of natural light. I mean, that, that's the key to photography, as you know. It's the key to filmmaking. And, you know, how do you create that authenticity? How do you create that moment which really sucks the viewer in and, and just makes them think for a second? You know, you're thinking about storylines, cold opens. I mean, it's just, um, I get inspired from from a number of different sort of things that I watch, scripted, non-scripted. Uh, you know, there's a couple of friends of mine in the business who are brilliant at what they do. Uh, I look at their work. Uh, I talk to them about certain ideas. And it's just sort of a constant evolution. You know, in the military, we used to we used to fly missions every day. You used to brief before you go flying. And when you got back, it didn't matter whether you're the most senior guy in the room or the junior pilot. Everyone had this sort of this space to be able to say look, what they thought was good about the trip and what they thought was bad about the trip, and more importantly, how do we get better? And I've just applied that to filmmaking. So every time you come back from filming, even after this interview, I think to myself, you know, what could I have done better in that interview? What, how could I have filmed that better? What could I have done to to make the setup better? How could I have given myself more time to to get this particular shot? How could I have conducted an interview better? Um, you know, and it's just a, a constant evolution, a constant process. And, and when you're going into different parts of the world and you're speaking, you know, to people that don't speak your language, it's all about body language. It's all about how do you communicate your intent um, without being able to speak the same language. And, and it's possible. There are ways of doing it, you know. It's, it's, it's a, it's, it, I think it's just a constant assessment of yourself in a positive way of how you evolve. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that has been absolutely key to getting to where I am today and being able to go into these places and and get the content that I need. I'm going to restrain myself and just ask two more questions. (laughs) Sure. (laughs) Has travel changed you? Without a shadow of a doubt. I'm a Welshman. I I was born... (laughs) What does that that mean? What does it mean to be a Welshman? Uh, It means there are more sheep than people in my country, (laughs) for starters. Um, It means that I come from a very a very humble background, a small little village. Uh, I don't come from money or wealth. Um, and I think, you know, as, as someone that is, as, as a white male that's grown up in a developed country, uh, it shows me just how, just how privileged I am. It also, travel also allows me to come back and, and tell credible stories to, to the people that don't get to travel to these places. And it, it allows, most importantly, I think this is probably the most important word of the interview, it allows me to help give people perspective on what is, what is actually, uh, you know, what you should really get concerned about in this world and, you know, what actually really will just be nothing the next day. And I think that's important. Uh, you know, I, I love the way, understanding the way various cultures do things very differently to us that actually we can learn a lot from. Mm-hmm. You know, which aren't developed at all in some some respects. Um, I love the sense of community in some in some areas. The the way that tribes go about their business. Um, there's a lot there's a lot to learn. It's just being open to open to other people's stories and and, and lives and 
and the humanitarian component is so important. You know, human rights is has been severely tested at the moment. Humanity has been severely tested at the moment, as those seagulls will will testify to. Color, yeah, yeah. Um, I think that's a, that's one of the most important things for me about travel. But I've got this very unique. Uh, skill set, which I'm grateful for and privileged to do, is to be able to capture that. Not just go and see it, but capture it mm-hmm. and tell that story. And I think that's that's a wonderful place to be. So, last phase of the interview. <laughs> tell me one travel story. <laughs> mm. One that sticks with me is it's work related, but I was uh, I was on the I was on the outskirts of Southwest Mosul when the Iraqi SF were going in to liberate it from the Islamic State. And there was this, there was this elderly woman. Um, she must have been late 60s, in the full hijab, niqab, sort of burqa effect. And she'd lived in Mosul under occupation from the Islamic State. And I got my fixer, fixer's like a local producer, to sort of just go up to her and ask if she'd be prepared to talk to me. And she was. And she came and I, I put the microphone on her and she still, I could just see her eyes, but her eyes told her, told a big story. And then just, just as she was about to talk, she literally reached up and pulled her niqab down so, and revealed the full face to me. So she was a, a, an elderly Iraqi lady that had not shown her face to a strange male for over two years because of what the Islamic State had, had did in their town. And the fact that she felt comfortable in revealing her face and then talking to me was a real moment because um, I captured it all on camera. And then she went on to tell me that the Islamic State had, had double-tapped her son, shot her son twice in the head and killed him about a mile away from where we were. She was displaced and I'd caught her just returning back to her home. She'd realized that the Iraqi forces who were doing a, an incredible job of, of liberating the city and taking massive casualties in doing so, but they'd pushed the Islamic State back beyond the neighborhood, which is where she owned a, her, her property, and she was literally just couldn't wait to get back in there. And I, I caught her on that moment going back in again. It was just a, it was just the right place, right time, lovely moment, um, and being able to tell that story. And uh, that's something that will probably stay with me for a long time, I think. Thank you so much. I, I just have to say, you are what I aspire to be. Thank oh, you for um, that's kind, but for, for, for taking people's stories so seriously and working so hard to to be um, a conscientious storyteller. That it, it it's so heartening to meet people that are doing that. Yeah, it's not easy. Um, it, it, it you know it takes a lot of work, a lot of sacrifice. Um, but, but I feel for those people that really do believe in, in the stories that they want to tell, the, the, the technological environment at the moment that we see is, is becoming um, more and more flexible and allowing us to, to do that. So if you've, you know, to anyone listening for this, if, they, if they've got a real aspiration to go and become a storyteller, then there's everything out there for the moment for you to go and do that. It probably won't come and sit itself on your lap. You'll probably have to go out there and and be tenacious and go after it, but but we're in a real moment now where you can actually you can actually be quite successful in doing it. So yeah. you know, and every day's a school day. I think that's probably the biggest mantra is like you know, every day's a school day. Um, but no, it's been great to meet. You.
Thank you so much, Mikey, for taking the time to share a few of your many incredible stories. So not only does Mikey constantly do reporting from around the world, he has a film coming out on the BBC very soon this spring. It's called My Autistic Big Brother and Me. You can find out more details on his website, MikeyK.com. Also, I want to encourage you to make a donation to Weston's Fund. It's a campaign by my brother and his wife to alleviate the medical costs of families who have miscarriages. It's a beautiful opportunity to remember their son, Weston, and to bless people at a painful moment. So go to westonsfund.org. That's W-E-S-T-I-N-S-F-U-N-D dot O-R-G. Weston with an I. By the way, this is the third anniversary of the Observer Effect podcast. It's been pure joy meeting so many wonderful people and learning again and again the difference teaches. Thank you to Dana Boulay for her music and thank you for listening. <laughs>